Hey Kingdom Roots friends, I wanted to let you know that we're taking a quick one episode break from our Church Called Tove series to bring you a lecture that Scott did back in 2013 at the 22nd Annual Wheaton Theological Conference. In this lecture, he has some really important insights to share as we navigate today's political climate. So, hope you enjoy that lecture. I also wanted to remind you about the two different giveaways that we have going on right now to celebrate our podcast getting close to one million listens and just wanted to say thank you for the way that you've been faithful and listened to us throughout all the episodes that we've made. So what Kingdom Roots is doing in partnership with Tyndale and the publishing of A Church Called Tove is that we're giving everyone 20% off through Tyndale's website of A Church Called Tove. So I'll include a link in the show notes to be able to purchase A Church Called Tove through Tyndale's website, but want to encourage you to do that just as our way of saying Again, thank you for all that you do in um, being a part of the Kingdom Roots community. Also, wanted to let you know that we have a grand prize giveaway that we're doing of giving three bundle sets away of Scott's books once we hit one million downloads. And so these bundles include Pastor Paul, Reading Romans Backwards, Blue Parakeet, The State of New Testament Studies, and even a year subscription to Seminary Now, which is Northern's new subscription-based streaming video platform that offers all sorts of on-demand video courses from today's leading professors, ministry practitioners, and authors. This whole bundle here, get this, is a value of over $350. So, Here's how you participate to enter the giveaway. All you have to do is write a review of A Church Called Tove, wherever you get the book from, or you could get onto Goodreads and review it there. But whether it's Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you get the book from, um, just leave a review, and then I'll include a form in the show notes for you to provide the link to where you, you did that and your information so that we can add you to the giveaway competition. But again, Thanks so much for being one of our valuable listeners. Uh, We're excited to have you as always. And so without further ado, here's the episode. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a lecture from Scott on Jesus and kingdom politics. Thanks to Wheaton and to Jeff Greenman uh, for this kind invitation and to Brannon uh, for InterVarsity's support. Commonly, one begins a discussion of the politics of Jesus by reconstructing his political world and locating Jesus among the options. Explain from the right to the left, the Maccabees and the Zealots, the Essenes and the Pharisees, and then on to the Herodians and Sadducees. Or one could sketch Jesus' relationship to the various Herods, and in particular, Herod Antipas. Admittedly, what one often observes is that the Reconstruction rules the conversation. Less benignly, the problem is that the Reconstructor rules the conversation. Even more, one starts to plot the first-century groups as analogies to political parties and theories today. Studies of the politics of Jesus spread across the spectrum, 
including American social gospel proposals, a vast array of liberation theologies, as well as classic Anabaptist studies, especially the study of John Howard Yoder, The Politics of Jesus. And we are not to ignore the sketches of how Jesus might speak into the options for political involvement today. But more directly about Jesus in his world and politics, one thinks of Alan Starkey and the Danish scholar Morten Herning Jensen, then on to more radical proposals like Obery Hendricks Jr. and Richard Horsley, or to scholars like Sean Frayne, Warren Carter, Walter Wink, and John Dominic Crossan. Such studies sometimes get ramped up into Manichaean or Malthusian alarms as they tell different stories about Jesus. To be blunt, some of these studies both reveal much about the author's politics and little about Jesus. One typical logic is simple. The New Testament talks about kingdom. The ruling kingdom is Rome. Therefore, when the New Testament talks about kingdom, Jesus is talking anti-Rome. In fact, Rome is just like the United States. What Jesus says about Rome, in fact, is what he says about the United States. This anti-empire approach has mushroomed in the last two decades, but one is at least entitled to ask if perhaps kingdom could be set into Israel's history and not so much over against Rome. That kind of logic would be different. The New Testament talks about kingdom. The ruling kingdom is hoped to be Davidic. Therefore, the New Testament kingdom talk is speaking about fulfillment in Israel and not so much about Rome. The difference between these two logics could hardly be more noticeable. My methodological proposal is only that we begin with Jesus, with his words and his claims in his location in Israel's story, and only then can we find our way to ponder the politics of Jesus and their significance today. Of course, I know that my approach is objective, and it has nothing to do with my Anabaptist politics. <laughs> Unlike Paul or Peter, both of whom have observations to be used in our studies of politics, Jesus stood within the majority. So we will begin with Jesus. I'd like to begin with my thesis. Jesus declared the kingdom's inauguration and summoned his hearers to decide if they would follow him into the kingdom or walk away. Declaring the kingdom led Jesus into public discourse, that is to label Herod Antipas as a fox, to deconstruct taxation, and to declare at the beginning of his ministry on the mountain of temptation and at the end of his ministry in a trial before Pilate that his kingdom was at odds with the kingdoms of this world. The politics of Jesus is a kingdom politics. Everything Jesus says is politics, kingdom politics. Which leads to the question, what is the kingdom? I dare you. This word kingdom is a very happy word today. It is used for a variety of deeds, including voting for Obama, putting in water wells in Africa, striving against drug and sex trafficking, as well as working in local soup kitchens. Kingdom has been set hard against church, which is now a bad word 
and connotes institutional and organized religion, legalism, hierarchy, pastors who preach dogmatic sermons, and traditional beliefs like the Nicene Creed. Kingdom folks gag on the word church. For many, kingdom work refers to good deeds good Christian people do in the public sector, while church is about religion. And sometimes this is all tied into the Missio Dei, rarely defined with precision, so that Missio Dei becomes much wider than the church and begins to look like doing good, establishing justice, and working for peace in the world. In some of these sketches, Missio Dei begins to look like a blend of the older social gospel and versions of liberation theology. Three, steam, three streams have shaped this good word versus bad word stalemate. Protestant liberalism slid kingdom into culture in either a reformed or a Lutheran mode of activism so that one can say, in America at least, the liberal Protestant ethos and the liberal American ethos are more or less the same. The Roman Catholic-inspired liberation theology focuses on economic justice and power while it extends some of what is found in the Protestant liberal tradition. The other stream, rather oddly, is the evangelical reduction of kingdom to, one, to one's personal surrender to God or to God's powerful act in a healing or miracle. So kingdom has come to mean either the common good or personal conversion or personal experience. In spite of these trends in church speak about kingdom, in church history, kingdom has had other emphases. That is, the kingdom is the redemption of God in Christ or the community of God in Christ. Which comes first, redemption or community? Again, while many evangelicals today prefer personal redemption and Protestant liberals social redemption, the church's history dominated as it was, we need to remind ourselves at times, for 1,500 years by Catholicism and Orthodoxy, has preferred the word community. More pointedly, the church sees in the word kingdom another word for the church. Contemporary uses of the term kingdom tend either to diminish community as church or reduce redemption to peace and justice activism. These two terms, redemption and community, need to be reinserted into the center of any kingdom discussion. The danger here is a false dichotomy. So let me propose that we enter into a discussion of the politics of Jesus by defining kingdom as the redeemed community under Jesus. The substantive here is community, not redeemed. When we make the substantive redemption, we turn toward the cultural captivity of the kingdom or toward over-individualized senses of conversion. When we make community the substantive, we turn our faces beyond the church toward the biblical sense of the term. The kingdom is the redeemed community and only the redeemed community. If this understanding of kingdom begins to sound like the word church, then I'm saying what I want to say. I want to defend this in what follows. Nullum regnum extra ecclesium.
First, the kingdom of God is a geopolitical social reality. The word kingdom in Hebrew malkut and in Greek basileia in the Bible denotes a geopolitical reality. If you are a cheerleader and you shout to the crowd, kingdom in a first century Jewish gymnasium, they don't shout back personal salvation. <laughs> they say God or Israel or land or Jerusalem. And instead of redemption, they may well say liberation from Rome. Zechariah clearly understood kingdom in Luke 1, 67 to 79 this way. To say kingdom then was to speak of a geopolitical reality. Hence in 1 Samuel 15, 28, we have the kingdom of Israel. And in 2 Chronicles eleven seventeen, we have the kingdom of Judah. And in 1 Kings 2, 12, we have the kingdom of Solomon. This geopolitical sense of kingdom comes to the surface in texts like 1 Chronicles 28, 5. Of all my sons, David declares, and Yahweh has given me many, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of Yahweh over Israel. Abijah, king of Judah, facing a battle with Jeroboam, will say a bit later, and now you plan to resist the kingdom of Yahweh, which is in the hands of David's descendants. Second theme is God as king. Because kingdom requires a king on a throne, the term will always have a sense of rule or reign. The one who rules in the kingdom vision of Jesus is God and not any human ruler, including a ruler from Rome. There is something a little on the side of anarchism here in Jesus that needs to be appreciated, though we can but, much, but, but mention it. I point directly at 1 Samuel 8, where it is abundantly clear God sees a human king on a throne in Israel to be a rejection of God as king. And it is worth noting here that some see Deuteronomy along the same line. The, implica the implication here is colossal. When Jesus announces the kingdom of God, one must at least consider that he's just erased human kings and that now Jesus, the incarnate one, is God on the throne. The issue is not if the sense of rule is at work in the word kingdom. The issue is that for a Jew to say what Jesus did, as in, the time has been fulfilled and the kingdom of God has drawn near, the first impulse of the Jewish listener was not redemption in a personal sense, but God and community, society, Israel, land, temple, and government from Jerusalem. In other words, a geopolitical reality. The redemption will be the eschatologically anticipated liberation of Israel from the hand of her enemies and the restoration of Israel to the land to live in holiness, wisdom, love, and justice under Israel's God. Let us not forget that in Jesus' world, Rome was a cuckoo ruling in Israel's nest and getting the cuckoo out was the aim of Jewish politics and theology. When the cuckoo flew from the nest, there would be salvation. Kingdom language excited precisely this kick the cuckoo out kind of hope and expectations 
and a belief that the promises of Israel's story were about to be fulfilled. In one of the most famous non-canonical texts, quoted often and cited for understanding first century Jewish messianism, Psalms of Solomon 17 through 18, one finds what a typical first century Jew would think of kingdom. We read lines like this, Lord, you chose David to be king over Israel and swore to him about his descendants forever that his kingdom would not fail before you. But a Gentile, now I refer to my own words, overpowered the kingdom of God, housed in Jerusalem, and Israel took on Gentile immorality and idolatry. So the psalmist pleads, See, Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel in the time known to you, O God. Undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles. God will act, the psalmist says, and he will deliver through judgment, and he will send them their Messiah, and I quote again, and he will purge Jerusalem and make it holy as it was even from the beginning, and he, the Messiah, will be a righteous king over them, taught by God. There will be no unrighteousness among them in his days, for all will be holy, and their king will be the Lord Messiah. The psalmist of Psalm of Solomon says the Messiah will be compassionate, Torah observant, and a blessing to Israel and the Gentiles. He will pastor the people and lead them into holiness. I have quoted from this text both because it is not as familiar and because it is typical of what a first century thought, per person thought when the word kingdom was used. Kingdom was about the redeemed community living under the Messiah in the land and observing Torah. When Jesus said the kingdom has drawn near, then this is what he had to mean at some level or no one would have understood what he was talking about. So let me summarize this a little bit more theoretically. The kingdom for Jesus was eschatological because it was about the story of Israel coming to fulfillment in the story of Jesus. It was ecclesial because it was for the people of Israel now winnowed to those who confessed allegiance to King Jesus. It was Christological because Jesus revealed it, Jesus created it, Jesus ruled in it, and anyone who chose to submit to him was in the kingdom. Those who didn't weren't kingdom people and were outside the kingdom. It was ethical because those who submitted to Jesus lived as Jesus taught them within the boundaries of a kingdom ethic. My claim then is that this eschatological, ecclesial, Christological, ethical set of lines gives birth to a redeemed community under Jesus. This redeemed community under Jesus is the politics of Jesus. Take any one element from this set of lines, be it eschatological hope, ecclesial institution, Christological formulation or ethical vision and strip it from the others and you diminish the politics of Jesus. His politics is a robust politics aimed at creating entire communities from the ground up, which means when we talk about the politics of Jesus, we talk about the church. The politics of Jesus is the church. For centuries, 
Catholics and Protestants battled it out over one set of verses, namely Matthew 16, 17 to 19, where Peter confesses Jesus as Messiah and where Jesus informs his listeners about the church. This is no place to settle all the debates. Instead, I want to draw your attention to something sometimes ignored. There is an indissoluble connection in these words between church, what Jesus came to build, and the kingdom of heaven, where heaven means the divine over-againstness with respect to worldly kings. The kingdom is the future for those who are now in the church. Church people are kingdom people. The church is the present reality, the present embodiment of the future kingdom. There is no kingdom outside church people, the community of Jesus gathered under him. To Peter is given the keys to the kingdom. That is, to Peter, through the declaration and implementation of the gospel, is given authority about entrance and exclusion to the kingdom. And the church is the on-earth expression of the kingdom. Even more can be said. Jesus reveals the kingdom. Jesus is the Messiah or the king of that kingdom. And Jesus is the foundation of the church. And there is no church outside Jesus. Therefore, we can conclude that while it would not be wise to equate kingdom with church or church with kingdom, they are the same in our world today. There is no kingdom outside the church, nullum regnum extra ecclesium. Why? Because the only kingdom there is is one where people live under Jesus. And the church is the redeemed community under Jesus. The kingdom is not an ethic that can be flattened into a secular social ethic and then announce that wherever we find that secular ethic, we've got kingdom. The kingdom is fellowship and discipleship under Jesus and only there, which means we need to look at three marks of the politics of Jesus, the marks of life under King Jesus, and as we form a fellowship under him. The first mark of the politics of Jesus is love. One element of the politics of Jesus is an ethic, and the ethic of Jesus is reduced on two occasions to love. I begin with the big one, namely Mark 12, 28 through 32, when the scribe asked Jesus to weigh in on one of the debates of the day. When discerning how best to know the will of God, do we multiply the mitzvot into a myriad, a myriad of halakot, that is, do we multiply the 613 Torah commandments into interpretations and rulings, or do, do we reduce the 613 to their essence? The scribe's question of Jesus belongs to the second hermeneutical tradition, so he asks, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus' response is what I call the Jesus Creed. He swipes the heart of Jewish piety, the daily recitation of the Shema, from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, and welds it to Leviticus 19.18 and forms a reduction of Torah to two. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. The second instance of this is what we call the golden rule, now found at Matthew 7.12 or Luke 6.31, where Jesus reduces Torah and the prophets to doing to others what you would have done to you. The use of a self-ethic 
to frame an other ethic unites the golden rule to the Jesus creed. We can but mention the important uses of love in John's gospel, where Jesus' own self-sacrificing love is the template for discipleship. But this raises an important question, one not often asked, but usually assumed in definition. What is love? Until love is defined, its import for the politics of Jesus will be ignored and it will be assumed. A biblical theology of love begins not in an American English dictionary, but by observing God's love in relation to creation and to God's people, Israel, the kingdom, and the church. What one discovers, and here I must make a long discussion quite short, is that God's love is a rugged covenant commitment shaped by three prepositions, with, for, and unto. God's rugged commitment is to be with Israel and the church, to be for Israel and the church as its covenant maker and protector and warrior. And this sense of being with and for is shaped by an eschatology of unto. God's love is about forming God's people into a people of holiness, purity, love, wisdom, and justice. The politics of Jesus is all about this sense of love. Briefly, a defense of each element. The fundamental relationship of God with humans, most notably with Israel and the church, is as a rugged as a covenant or a rugged commitment to someone. From Genesis 12 onward, covenant forms the core of God's relation with humans. That covenant is formed first as divine presence. God is with his people in entering vulnerably into the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the dwelling of the glory in that temple, and then radically in the incarnation where God is Emmanuel in the flesh. And then finally, when God dwells with his people in the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21.3. God's covenant is to be for his people, which is precisely what I will be your God and you will be my people means as a covenant formula in the Bible. With and for are designed in the Bible for the eschatological unto. God forms a covenant with Israel to make it a people for his own possession. God liberates Israel from the clutches of Pharaoh to lead them to the Torah for life in the land. And God saves Israel and the church in order to make his people holy, loving, and pure. This apologetic for defining love by God's love leads to a radical political conclusion. The politic of Jesus subverted the kingdoms of this world because instead of conquering one's enemies, instead of killing one's foes, and instead of dominating others, Jesus urged his followers to love their enemies. Love has content because it meant a covenant commitment to be with enemies, to be for enemies, and to dwell with them as God worked through them for the eschatological unto. Love, in other words, incorporates themes like justice and liberation and peace. A second theme in kingdom theology, I grew up Baptist and we didn't have clocks, so I'm not sure what to do here. What time do I finish? 2.08, I got 13 minutes. 
Ooh, I'm doing all right, but you don't know where I am. On occasions, Jesus' kingdom vision is connected to the unleashing of liberating, redeeming power. If the kingdom is the redeemed community, redemption marks the politics of Jesus. What kind of redemption? Holistic, of course. Three texts will get this point established. First, at Jesus' inaugural sermon in Nazareth, we hear the guiding themes of Jesus' entire kingdom ministry when Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61 and announces that the text is about himself. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus redeems the poor, the prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed by liberating them. The text originally was about the exiles, so we would be foolish not to recall that this is clearly an end-of-exile passage, and Jesus is the one who redeems by ending exile. Many properly see a social kind of justice kingdom vision here. After all, both Magnificat and Benedictus in Luke 1 lead us to see a radical social rearrangement under King Jesus. And John the Baptist's concrete demands for repentance, economic distribution to the core, lead us to the same ideas. Yet, I want to urge that we not reduce these words to social ethics, but recall that these words quoted by Jesus were about the exiles from Babylon. And the terms poor and prisoners and blind and the oppressed were metaphors for Israel's disciplined condition. Perhaps then we are wise to see in these terms liberated Israel, the new people around Jesus, and not spread our net too widely or at least too quickly. In Matthew 12, 28, we learn that Jesus' exorcisms are kingdom redemptions and liberations. If it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Here the redemptive powers of Jesus derive from the Spirit. Thus, the politics of Jesus is a power politic, a liberating, spirit-driven redemption. Finally, when Jesus sent out the 72, he told them to heal the sick who were there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. Luke 10:9. Kingdom and the unle- and unleashing the redemptive liberating power of God for those trapped in sin and systemic injustice and satanic oppression are tied together for Jesus. But this liberating power is the work of God in Jesus and in the spirit so that a kingdom politic is a politic that is Christological and pneumatological to the core. These two elements cannot be stripped from the politics of Jesus without stripping the politic of its essence. We can press this harder. The only place where kingdom is a reality is where the liberating, redeeming reality of Jesus has occurred. In Latin, extra salutis, Nullum regnum. Third, cross. The distinguishing feature of the politics of Jesus is the cross. Earlier, I cited some texts from the Psalms of Solomon, considered by some to be the purpose-driven life of the first century, in which kingdom, Messiah, and the conquering are all brought into a potent mixture. 
The same kind of mixture is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, especially in the famous scrolls called the War Scroll. Kingdom, Messiah, and war belong together. No battle, no conquering of the enemies, no kingdom, no Messiah. Some of us now may be singing a Bob Marley song. Kings and military victories belong together in Judaism as much as they do in the Chronicles of Narnia, but not with Jesus' kingdom vision. Jesus utterly deconstructed king and kingdom, the Messiah and his kingdom, by draping a cross over their necks. Peter confesses that Jesus is Messiah. Jesus reveals his cross. Peter rejects Jesus' suggestion of a death. Jesus must rebuke Peter for not comprehending that exaltation and victory will occur through the cross and the resurrection. Peter can enter into that kingdom if he too embraces the way of the cross. The Last Supper both reveals and embodies the way of the cross. We think of Jesus washing their feet. When, according to Luke, the disciples want to know who will rule in the kingdom, and Simon boldly announces that he would never deny Jesus in utter confusion of what's actually occurring, Jesus leaves them, heads to Gethsemane, and so the Last Supper becomes the Lord's Supper, and the temple sacrificial system finds its fulfillment in the death of Jesus, and the powers of death are cracked when Jesus rises from among the dead. The cross is the way of following Jesus, and a politic of Jesus is a politic that embraces the cross. As the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, so disciples are to serve one another by embracing the cross of Jesus. As Jesus said it, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. Yoder long ago noted four typical uses of cross language to encourage those who are suffering, and to point to the inner experience of humility before God, as well as the renunciation of pride and imitation as renunciation. Yoder interprets imitation singularly as the cross. Servanthood, he said, replaces dominion. Forgiveness absorbs hostility. So what is the cross? The cross evokes humiliating rejection as the way of love. It is the ultimate form of witness foreness, and untuness. Jesus identifies so fully with his followers, with God's people, that he enters Jerusalem for them. He enters into their humiliation, their sinfulness, and their death unto a new creation resurrection. He takes upon himself the Roman curse against Jerusalem's powers and evacuates it of its deathly powers. Instead of overturning violence with violence, Jesus' path was the way of suffering that overcomes violence. The politic of Jesus, then, is a politic of self-denial, co-crucifixion, and exaltation to the path of sacrifice for others. In Latin, extra crucium nullum regnum. What does this look like, then, when it comes to the state? I suggest we get four hints from Jesus of what a kingdom politic looks like when it faces the state. First, God's time and God's way. When the devil took Jesus onto a very high mountain to offer to Jesus his rightful assumption of the universal throne on the condition of worshiping him, Jesus said, away from me and worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Satan claimed to have this world in his grip. Jesus wanted it. 
It was why he came, but Jesus will not have it Satan's way. We can wed this text to the famous line before Pilate in John 18. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus said, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to protect, prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, Pilate said. John 18 adds something not seen or perhaps seen only in inchoate form in the temptation. Here Jesus says that the kingdom way is not the way of violent domination. His kingdom is not of this world and it is from another place because the kingdom is nonviolent and because unlike Caesar's rule, his kingdom is about service and erasing human hierarchies. There is an inscription in Rome in the temple of Minerva recounting the victories of Pompeii that included over 2.1 million subjects surrendering, nearly 900 ships sunk or taken, and acquiring 1,500 towns and forts. As Dom Crossan frames Jesus' posture so well, your Roman Empire, Pilate, is based on the injustice of violence, but my divine kingdom is based on the justice of nonviolence. This is part of the politics of Jesus. Now tell that fox. Jesus' cruciform kingdom politics, shaped as it is in a redeemed community under the servant king, can surprise in its boldness. Antipas is the tetrarch of the Galilee, and perhaps in a reprisal of the crowd's attempt to make Jesus king, or perhaps because he thinks Jesus opposes his unlawful marriage as much as John was, Antipas wants to kill Jesus. The Pharisees inform Jesus of Antipas' designs on Jesus. Jesus' response, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Prophets do not fear rulers. Jesus knows Antipas is devious, manipulative, and dishonest. Regardless of what Antipas wants, Jesus declares he will continue in his redemptive, liberating work of the kingdom, and it will end, as did John's prophetic life, in death. But Jesus' death will be in the center of power in Jerusalem. Like John's death, Jesus will take place in conjunction with a festive meal. The politic of Jesus entails words for devious earthly kings, words that will kill Jesus. Taxes. Taxes embody the state and empire, and at the same time embody one's relation to the state and the empire. Once his disciples are asked if Jesus pays the temple tax, and once he is asked if it is right to pay taxes to Caesar. These are not simple texts to examine, and it would not be hard to exhaust the space for this study on each of these texts. The tax revolt, I'll skip that, the temple tax. Tax collectors ask Peter if Jesus pays the two drachma tax, a quasi-voluntary tax for every Jewish male that was about atonement and loyalty. 
even though this tax tended toward enormous bounties for the temple and its personnel. Not all paid the tax, and the Essenes at Qumran offered their passive-aggressive protest by paying it only once per lifetime. Pharisees paid the tax, but priests did not. They asked Jesus because they think he sits loose on such issues. Peter informs them that Jesus does. Then three moves are made in the text. Jesus informs them, uh, Jesus opens the discussion when Peter enters the house by asking, from whom do the Gentile kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? They exact revenue from others, Peter answers. What Jesus says next is is not anarchic or radical. It is boilerplate at first. Then the children are not exempt, or are exempt, but the boilerplate gets hot. Then the children are exempt, so that we may not cause offense, Jesus says, pay the taxes. But then he provides miraculously revenue for the taxes in the mouth of a tilapia, the fish known in the Holy Land as St. Peter's fish. Jesus claims the status of citizens for Peter and himself, which means they're exempt. But in order not to offend Jesus, pays the taxes. Jesus' logic is from the lesser to the greater. If kings of the earth don't tax their own citizens, then surely our God is more fatherly, so God won't tax his citizens. Richard Bauckham draws this conclusion. Thus, Jesus' objection is to theocratic taxation taxing God's people in God's name because it is inconsistent with the way Jesus understands the rule of God. The story substantiates this fatherly love for his children by providing the revenue for Jesus and Peter. What we see here is probably a subtle form of deconstruction. We won't pay taxes as duty, but we will pay taxes voluntarily in order not to offend even if he offends Anabaptist ideals. The logic of this passage, in part, hangs on one word, we. Jesus identifies himself and Peter with the children of the Father, and we can rightly spy here an ecclesiology at work. In this we, Jesus distanced himself from both Roman and Galilean and Judean citizens by claiming that he and his followers are citizens of the Father's kingdom, and as such, They are free from taxation as a duty. They are no longer worldly citizens, but kingdom citizens, and as such operate on a different basis in that they pay taxes as loving acts of voluntary charity, which is a little closer to Anabaptist ideals. I've run out of time. I have another section on Caesar's taxes, uh, in which I don't have anything interesting to say. other than what I wanted to say. And then there's a temple entry, which I think is a political mockery of Roman understanding of kingship. I'll conclude now with the last paragraph, with the heat breathing down my neck. But Tim's younger than me, so he can cut his paper. (laughs) Like a magnet hidden under the table that attracts all metal bits to its power, so there is a hidden element in all these themes when it comes to the politics of Jesus. Jesus himself. Jesus may have preached the kingdom of God, but it was Jesus who revealed and declared that kingdom. 
He is the one through whom God will rule. He exhibits its love. He unleashes its power. And it is his cross and resurrection that take the powers of death and darkness under to drown them. Time after time in these sketches, the magnet of Christology pulls us into its orbit and we realize that kingdom is very close to what Origen once said it was. Jesus, he said, is the autobasileia, the kingdom itself. There is then no kingdom outside of Christ. The first word in the politics of Jesus is a word about Jesus. Extra Christe, nullum regnum. <laughs>